0: The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. If you have a Bible, and hope you do, uh, open up to Romans chapter 14. If you're in the pew Bibles that we've got here, it's going to be page 892, Romans chapter 14. We are wrapping up today uh, our series on culture. I hope it's been helpful. Has it been helpful? Okay, praise the Lord. Um, If you missed any of the weeks, and we found out last week that uh, in the U.S., an average churchgoer misses five out of eight Sundays. So I'm sure you missed one or two of them. Uh, they're all online, YouTube, Facebook, uh, podcast platform of your choice. They're all there, and I hope that you'll go back and, uh, and listen to those if you missed them. Thank you for engaging, and I know that we didn't cover every subject matter. Uh, there, there might be one that you're like, I wish we would have answered that, and hopefully we'll do a series like this again and be able to answer more of those issues, but what I want to address today wasn't actually on my list at the beginning of this series, But I've grown more and more convinced that we need to talk about it, and that is um, that we live in a culture that seems to be dangerously and increasingly cynical. Um, And and a cynic is someone who is um, distrustful, uh, contemptuous, and uh, skeptical, of, about everything, but, but primarily skeptical that, um, that people would do anything out of true altruism, right? That, that, that um, they believe they're convinced that everyone is motivated purely by self-interest. And so what that leads to in our culture is things like this. Um, I'm, I'm pulling these uh, resources from Pew Research and also from Gallup. Uh, over more than six out of 10 Americans are frustrated with the democratic system in the United States. No surprise to most of you in the room. Uh, In fact, 85% of Americans who are polled say that the the government needs a complete overhaul. Nearly half of Americans have zero confidence in our news media. We believe that we are being lied to to our face. Now, the irony of that is we're also also very naive to the news source that we choose to trust and believe everything that they say. but we don't believe anything else anyone else says. Uh, Confidence in the scientific community has plummeted since COVID. Confidence in the justice system in the last few years has plummeted. Even our confidence in religious institutions is at an all time low. And, And sometimes for good reason, right? We've earned it. But there are a growing number of people in our country who believe that faiths like Christianity are actually harmful to society. And so the crazier and the darker that the world we live in becomes, the more important it becomes for our light to shine even brighter. Because when life comes crashing down, and it will for all of us, and it will for all of them, when life comes crashing down, when, when, all, the, when all the tips fall, right? When people need help, where do they go? They still come to church. They come to churches just like this one. And when they come to church, they expect to find God here. They expect to be helped and you know what? Those expectations are right. So you and I, we have, we have a high calling to display imperfectly, but tangibly, invisibly, something of the beauty and the glory of God. So what I want to get at this morning is, is what makes us as Christians, as a church, stand out in a, in a community, in a, in a world, society that is marked by such cynicism. And so when I was I was studying, I just, I came across these just handful of little verses here in Romans 14 and something about them spoke to me about this issue. And so it, it may, we may not quite be able to get there uh, right away if you, if you read them on the surface, but I hope that as I explain them, uh, it'll make sense. So join me in Romans chapter 14. I just want to look at Uh, Verses 16 through 18. Verses 16 through 18 in Romans chapter 14. Here's what the word of God says. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be your people. We are grateful to be gathered together this morning. Uh, We're reminded from Ephesians 2 that as the people of God come together, that we are being assembled into a dwelling place for the spirit. There there is something unique that happens here among us when the people of God gather together. And I realize that there are people even right now who are watching us online who who are um, unable to be here because of sickness or other issues or even who are separated by distance. And I thank you that they can join us even in this moment. They're included in that spiritual household that is being built together as a dwelling place for your spirit. And so God, as we look to your word, we, we ask you to do what only you can do through your word and by your spirit in our hearts, that you would make, that you'd transform us, that you would humble us, that you would fill us with joy in the spirit, that you would give us clarity on what it is that you had to say to the Roman church and what you're saying to us right now. And Lord, that you would help me to uh, rightly divide this word, that it might benefit the people of God this morning, And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. We ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. 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 All right. So uh, we already read the text here. What I, if you're a note taker, I'll just give you the, the first point you can jot down and we'll explain it. First thing I want you to see here is the tension among us. The tension among us. We'll, we see that here uh, really in, in verse, verses 16 and 17. Uh, I'll read it once again. He says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, you may know this, but Romans is, is Paul's greatest theological treatise, right? It is full of rich and meaningful doctrinal teaching about the gospel, about Jesus, about his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection and what it means for us to be followers of Jesus, to be filled with his spirit and to walk in him. And when we get to the 14th chapter of Romans, Paul's actually addressing an issue uh, that was unique to the church of Rome, something that was happening in this body. And what was happening was there was, there was conflict Um, a a division that was sort of separating the community. It was a conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers over convictions about food and drink. And you might think, well, that's really silly to divide over food and drink. And if you've lived long enough, uh, you've seen churches divide over sillier things. Now, what was happening here is this, that Jewish believers, uh, the Jews were accustomed to the dietary restrictions that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay? And so now that they had Jesus, the question was do we just do away with that, or do we still uphold the dietary laws of the Old Testament? The Gentile believers, on the other hand, didn't grow up with those traditions. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have those dietary restrictions. But what did happen in m- most pagan cities was that the meat that was sold in the market had been sacrificed to idols. So the question for the Gentiles was, are we free to eat this meat sacrifice to idols? And so you had Jews with strict dietary laws and Gentiles with no dietary laws, and they were, they were in conflict with one another and trying to convince one another that their convictions were for everyone. And so what's happening is this, this division over non-essential stuff is distracting them. And Paul is concerned here that their division, the division between them, would harm the reputation of Christ and his church with those outside the community, with those who are not followers of Jesus. They're gonna look at the church, they're gonna look at how you're squabbling over non-essential stuff and they're gonna say, well, this is worthless. Look at it again, verse 16. He says, do not let, uh, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The, the word here for evil is the word um, where we get the word blaspheme from. So he's not speaking to the Jews or the Gentiles about the other. Some would say that, that this is, he's talking to the strong in faith or the weak in faith and saying, don't let the other look at you, but that would just fuel the fire of conflict more, right? What he's saying is, Don't let outsiders look at you fighting with one another and and determine that Christianity isn't worth it. In other words, don't give folks a reason to speak profanely about Jesus because of the way you represent him. Now here's the reality. Churches in every cultural moment face a tension between two important charges that Jesus gives us, that the scriptures give us. On the one hand, we are to be separate from the world. Okay, we see this in places like John 15, where he says, you are not of this world. We see this in Philippians chapter three, when he reminds us we're citizens of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter six, where Paul quotes from Leviticus, where it tells us that we are called out to be separate from the world even in first John chapter two, where we are reminded not to love this world, okay? So there is a clear call for us to be separate from the world, but at the same time, the second charge is to remain in the world and be representatives of the kingdom of God. We see this in Matthew chapter five, for example. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill should not be hidden we see this in John 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer when he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul himself says, I become all things to all men so that by all means I might win as many as possible. And so this tension is difficult for us to hold because we all will fall to one side or the other naturally. Some of us are going to lean more towards separation. Some of us are going to lean more towards integration. And we've talked about this already in this, in this series early on. And so, so some of us, if I could use the phrase, are a little more truth than grace, and some of us are a little more grace than truth. And the problem with that is, left to ourselves, we're gonna get it partly wrong, but it's not going to feel wrong because we're also partly right. But truth without grace can be harsh, ugly, judgmental, and hypocritical. Grace without truth can be mushy and cowardly and weak but Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And so as we surrender ourselves more and more to Jesus, he makes us a people who are like him, who are distinct from the world, but who are in the world. And a church becomes a counter cultural community coming down from above. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God on this earth. And so the question for us is, what does it look like for us to be ambassadors of the kingdom here and now? And I'm glad we asked the question because Paul has a great answer for us. Look at verse 17 with me. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So now I want you to see the opportunity before us. This is our second point, the opportunity before us. I find it fascinating that this is, man, I just drank all over myself here, sorry. <clears throat> this is the first time, Romans chapter 14, it's the first time that Paul mentions the kingdom of God in, in, in the book of Romans. And that's fascinating because the kingdom of God is, was central to Jesus's ministry, central to Jesus's teaching. And Paul mentions the kingdom of God many other places in many other books and even further in the book of Romans, but for him to get 14 chapters into this book, and this is the first time that he mentions it. So we have to ask the question, well, what is the kingdom of God? And uh, Matt already mentioned it a little bit here, but um, broadly, we can say that the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus Christ rules and reigns because uh, Revelation 17 says that Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And so, Jesus is sovereign over all things. And so, broadly speaking, we could say that everything is the kingdom because everything belongs to Jesus and he's sovereign over it all. But, specifically, spiritually, the kingdom of God exists where people surrender themselves to the rule and reign of Jesus, where people fall under in glad submission to the rule and reign of Jesus. When we um, wave the white flag over our lives and say, Jesus, you can have it all, right? We come under his authority and we enter the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom by faith. With, with, with empty hands, the finished work of Jesus in his perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection for us to, to forgive us of sin and to welcome us into his kingdom and his family. We repent of sin. We turn away from sin and turn to him. And when we do that, we enter into the kingdom of God, which means no anyone who has not turned to Jesus in faith and repentance does not belong, belong to the kingdom of God. But as people, as the mission of God continues and as the, the people of God pro- continue to proclaim the word of God to people and people continue to surrender themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God expands, it grows until the kingdom of God will come in its fullness one day. And the prophet Habakkuk even says in Habakkuk 2 that the glory of God will cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea, okay? Okay. And so the task of the church, the task of the redeemed in Christ is to make the invisible kingdom visible to the world as we walk in glad submission to Jesus. As one author put it, we are, I've used this quote before, but I love it. So I'm gonna use it again. We are the model home of a new neighborhood that Jesus is building that will last forever. In other words, the church is to be a prophetic sign to the world of the coming kingdom that people can see with their eyes and enter into and join right now. And so Paul gives us here quickly three characteristics of the kingdom of God. This is not the only characteristics of the kingdom, obviously, but three that he mentions here that I want to hit for us really quickly and then we'll we'll drill down on one of them. Three characteristics of the kingdom of God that shape our lives as believers in Jesus. Verse 17, once again, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are marks of the kingdom and they should be marks of kingdom people. And so quickly, let's look at the first two. Righteousness. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of these non-essential material things that you are squabbling over, church. They're higher than that. Your your viewpoint is too small, right? Look up, look more grandly. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Okay, if you've read the Bible, you, you might know that there are two kinds of righteousness. What I'm going to call positional righteousness and practical righteousness, Okay, here's what I mean by that. Positional righteousness is the righteousness that is given to us by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, when we surrender to Jesus, when we take the hot mess of our lives and we just sort of lay it all down before the Lord Jesus and we go, I'm done. I'm tired of trying to live this life on my own for my own glory, with my own strength, you can have it. I surrender right? I I, I am receiving your finished work with my empty hands. I trust in you. I turn away from myself. Please save me. The Bible declares to us that in in that moment, we are instantly forgiven of all of our sin. Instantly. Everything that you have thought, done, the intentions of your heart, past, present, future, because guess what? When Jesus was on the cross, all of your sin was future. He died for it all he paid for it all in full you are not only forgiven of sin but you are declared righteous you are credited with the righteousness of god 2 corinthians 521 he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God so you are in some sense it's almost like you are you take off the, this tattered robe that is full of your sin and failure, and you put on this new robe that is the righteousness of Christ, and it can never get dirty again. You are declared, you are, you are seen by God through the lens of Jesus such that even though we continue to fail and stumble and fall, he sees you by faith in Christ as holy and blameless and above reproach. And that reality by itself, church, ought to cause all of our hearts to erupt with joy and praise that he would love us that deeply. Praise God. We're about to get charismatic up in here, people. And if you're new, don't worry, we don't have banners or snakes or any of that. So, yet, no, just kidding, 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 kidding. It's a joke, it's a joke. But this is, this is the center of the gospel. That we are forgiven of sin and covered with the righteousness of God. And so therefore we live our lives by faith in response to this by living lives that please him. Lives of practical righteousness. For example, in Romans chapter six, Paul reminds us we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. So therefore practice righteousness. Or Romans chapter 12, when Paul says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, which leads us to right living, holy living. So in Christ, our aim is not to protest the world. I'm sorry, it just isn't. Our aim is not to protest the world, but rather to live virtuously and honorably in the world as representatives of the most virtuous and honorable person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ which means we say no. By the power of God's spirit, we say no to everything that is non-noble. We belong to the king, y'all. There is nobility in us. And so we abstain from everything non-noble. Pride, arrogance, selfishness, negativity, cynicism. Righteousness in the Holy Spirit. By this power of the spirit, we say no to all of those things. We live righteously. Secondly, Peace, peace. Now, like righteousness, there are two kinds of peace. The Bible describes peace with God and the peace of God. And so again, because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel, because Jesus took the wrath of God for all our sin and folly and failure, Um, he absorbs that wrath. He turns it into favor. And we have, according to Romans 5, 1, peace with God. That's amazing. That the God of the universe who looks at us rebellious sinners, like who who do we think we are as human beings to look at the sovereign God of the universe and go, I got a better way of doing this than you do, which is what all of us do. He could smote us all like that for any number of reasons by which he would be totally justified. But he gives us grace, patience, kindness, the the blood of his own son to save us. We are at peace with God because of Jesus. And so therefore, we've already talked about this in the series. He also promises us in Christ a peace of God to rule our hearts. We see that in Colossians chapter 3. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We see that in uh, Philippians chapter 4. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Philippians chapter 4. Uh, he says, Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, r- guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's the peace of God which rules in our hearts and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Which means, as followers of Jesus, we refuse by the power of the Holy Spirit to be limited by our imperfect opinions, our perspectives, our fears, those things that tend to drive us. We we rest in the peace of God and we rest um, in in... Yes, in, at peace with God and the peace of God, which, which helps us to get along with one another. Because we know the world doesn't need more of our opinions. The world needs more of the peace of Jesus. So the opportunity before us is to demonstrate righteousness and peace, but also joy. And this is really where I want to drill down for the rest of our time together, which according to my clock is about 14 minutes. Can we hang in for 14 more minutes? Yeah. Praise the Lord. Now, Let me take a sip of water. You guys with me so far? This making sense. You see why this is so needed in our society today? Here's where I really want to focus our attention. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ in these ways is acceptable to God and approved by men. So we want to, we want to, be right with God and get along with the world, we demonstrate righteousness and peace and joy in Christ. Now, unlike righteousness and unlike peace, there's only one kind of joy. But it's a joy that grows deeper the longer that we walk with Jesus. Which means, and I'm probably gonna step on some toes right here, but I have to say it. There should be no such thing as a grumpy old Christian. Here's why. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you learn to rejoice in him. To rejoice always. I'm just quoting scriptures here. To rejoice in hope until that day when he takes us to glory and we rejoice fully and finally with him because Psalm 16 promises us that in the presence of God is fullness of joy. So what is joy? The world we live in, I mean, if you just look up joy in the dictionary, you're gonna find it equated with a synonym to happiness. But that is not the kind of joy the Bible talks about. Joy is less of an emotion and more of a perspective. It's more a way of seeing the world. Um, And it includes things like confidence in God and the peace of God and trust in him, right? That's what joy is. It's sort of this multifaceted thing that includes a lot of these other adjectives and and words that we've talked about. And, And joy is essential to the gospel, For the last, I don't know, five or six months now, I just have not been able to get over the proclamation of the angels in Luke chapter two when they come, and what do they say? We bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Joy is essential to the gospel. It's why Jesus came, among other reasons, but to give us fullness of joy. That's why he came such that uh, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us, though you haven't seen him, you've believed in him, and you are filled with joy inexpressible, uh, a, a joy that is full of glory that you cannot describe. I wonder for how many of us it's actually true today. In, in fact, um, in Jesus's first recorded sermon in the New Testament, we find it in Luke chapter 4. If you know the story, Jesus walks into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll uh, and he reads out of it a portion and then he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he actually is reading from Isaiah chapter 61 and I wanna read you a portion. It's also gonna be on the screen um, but if you wanna turn there, it's page 581. I want you to see what Jesus is quoting here because I think it's really important. Isaiah chapter 61, this is what Jesus is quoting in Luke chapter four. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Anyone feeling poor this morning, either broke or broke spiritually? He's got good news for you. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted any brokenhearted in the room. To proclaim liberty, the captives. Does anyone feel enslaved to sin this morning? The opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. is there anyone who's mourning today? To grant those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Listen to this. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. How many of you feel like a little busted up acorn in the ground right now? (laughs) But the Lord calls you an oak of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now skip to verse seven. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And in verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me, there we go, with the robe of righteousness. It just doesn't get much better than that, folks. In Jesus' very first sermon, he said, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And did the people rejoice? They tried to kill him. Because they said, well, I don't believe that. How many of us are stuck in a lack of joy because of our unbelief? In fact, even this morning, this is not in, well, it's sort of in my notes. This morning I was praying and, and you know, this doesn't happen to me very often, but the Lord gave me this. And I I know it sounds silly, but if you don't like it, take it up with him, not me. Three steps to reclaiming your joy. You know what they are? ABCs. Number one, Abide. Abide in him, dwell with him. Uh, John 15 promises that if we abide in him, we will find joy. That's the A, abide. B, believe his words. So it takes abiding to come across his words and then you gotta believe them. And if you've been around for a while, I've told you there there are at least 3,000 promises of God in the Bible that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Okay, so when you read the words of scripture and that little thing inside you goes, well, I don't know if that's true, you, you confront that and you take that, that unbelief to the Lord and you choose to believe his words over your thoughts. Yep. Abide, believe, third, cast all my anxieties on him because he cares for me. If we would spend a little bit of time abiding with him, believing his words, and casting our anxieties on him, I fully believe we would find our joy increasing. How could it be otherwise, folks? The joy of our salvation, the joy of the Lord is our strength in any and in every circumstance. It's as if the Lord is looking at you and me right now and he goes, if your joy is founded on me, guess what? I am the Lord, I change not. And that is a kind of joy that no one can take away because you know what? Your spouse didn't give you that joy. They can't take it away from you. Your job didn't give you that joy. Your job can't take that joy away from you. Your, your political party didn't give you that joy for sure. And it can't take it away from you either. It is permanent. It is lasting. It is deep. Um, I learned this week that uh, I don't know much about the ocean, right? Who does? But <laughs> I learned that during like a hurricane, you know, a raging storm, there can be uh, the, the, the water, you know, the waves are crashing 20, 30 feet high. But if you're in a submarine and you went down just 400 feet, it's as calm as a pond. The water doesn't rage down below. And may the Lord give us a joy that is so deep that no matter what storm is raging on the surface, we, we have a joy, 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 joy. Down in our hearts that sustains us through any and every circumstance. Therefore, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, becomes, in my view, one of the greatest apologetics for the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Who wants to follow a God that makes them more depressed than they already are? (laughs) It doesn't mean you're happy all the time. In fact, Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. And when people see in you the presence of God, there is something magnetic about it. A joy that sustains you through any and every circumstance. As we have seen in this series, we live in a culture that is marked by division and anger and fear and mistrust and suspicion. And there is so much tragedy and suffering and betrayal, and there's so many false promises that people make us every day, and life just has a way of shaking us like an elementary school bully. And all of that provides a, a breeding ground. Let down after letdown after letdown can be a breeding ground for deep cynicism. Many of you are getting ready to go spend. Thanksgiving with family and you know you've got relatives who are deeply cynical about everything and you just don't want to be around them and if you don't have those relatives you might be those relatives <laughs> and I love you too much to let you ruin Thanksgiving for everyone else. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you realize friends how poisonous cynicism is to the soul. And so the counter to that is the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And we as Christians can walk with an unshakable joy, even in a world of deep sin and folly and division. How, how do we do that? Because our hope is not in this world. It's not in our governments or the systems or leaders or technologies. Our hope is in Jesus, the one who has overcome the world. And Jesus promises us in John chapter 16, in this life, you will face tribulations. There's gonna be a whole lot of things that wanna suck the joy right out of you. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. And so when a people are surrendered to Jesus, when a people are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We are a people who are marked by righteousness and peace and joy. And we become, together and in our private lives, we become living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is alive, that anyone can come in and receive with empty hands the finished work of Jesus, and they have a shot at the joy of Jesus also. I wanna remind you, brothers and sisters, this is, and again, something else the Lord gave me this morning. And I don't know who it's for, but it's for somebody. You are a child of God, forgiven by the blood of God, credited with the righteousness of God, called into the family of God, entrusted with the word of God, which contains the promises of God. And you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. What on earth can overshadow that joy? This is who you are in Christ. So here's what I wanna do. I don't have questions for you this morning. Mostly the questions are for you to take and process with your group or whatever. Most groups aren't meeting. Um, We're gonna do communion. And um, as we get ready for that, I, I wanna remind you that in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. That's such a curious line. For the joy set before him, because this is Jesus who walked in eternal relationship with the Father, experience in the presence of God, pleasures forevermore. Like, what joy could there have been that he didn't experience? Like, it was set before him, meaning on the other side of the cross, there was a joy for him that he didn't experience on this side of the cross. And and it was the promise that you would be there that through enduring the cross, he saved you. He, he, he saved a people for himself. And so as we, as we come to the tables for communion, here's what we're gonna do. Here's why we're coming to these tables. And if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. This is for those who have given their lives to the Lordship of Christ. But, but here's what we're gonna do as we come down to these tables. We are going to, we're, we're remembering Jesus, for the joy set before him who endured the cross for us. And we are saying, by the power of your spirit, I will fight to abide in you, Lord. I will fight to believe that your words are true. And I will fight to to cast my anxieties on you because you care for me. That, that's, that's your commitment you're making to Jesus this morning, is I will abide, I will... By the power of your spirit, I will believe and I will, I will cast my anxieties on you. And I am asking you as I partake of this meal, as a promise of the, of the kingdom that will be fulfilled, I'm asking you to increase my joy. But before we come to communion, I want us to take a moment and pray. And, and I, don't, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask you. In fact, let's just do this right now. You, just everyone bow their heads for me real quick. We'll we'll go old school Baptist, every head bowed, every eye closed. (laughs) If you this morning would say, Brian, I hear what you're saying. And if I'm honest with you, I just, I don't know that I'm experiencing the joy of the Lord that he has promised me. Would you just slip your hand up? No one's looking. Just say, I need the joy of the Lord this morning. I'm not experiencing it and I want it but I don't have it. Would you just slip your hand up and let me pray over you? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's pray for these folks. Father, we wanna believe. We want to experience the joy of the Lord that overshadows our circumstances and experiences. And it is a battle, it is a fight every day to choose joy, whatever that means, to choose to abide in you, to choose to believe your words, to choose to cast our worries and fears and anxieties on you. But Lord, over and over and over again in the scriptures, you promise us joy. Restore to us the joy of our salvation as David prayed. Help us to rejoice in you always. Lord, would you even in this moment among these people who are so courageous and honest to raise their hands and say, I'm not experiencing this kind of joy. Would would you today for them bring a deep sense of comfort and joy? Because the good news is true. Jesus, you gave your life for us that we might have joy everlasting. And though this world shakes us like a bully and beats the life out of us and robs us of joy, by your spirit, you may restore our joy. By our spirit, you may restore our vitality and our strength. May the joy of the Lord be the strength for all of us. Empower us and strengthen us to to fight for our joy in Christ, no matter what this life throws at us. And Lord, as, as we grow in our walk with you, may the waters of our souls grow deeper and deeper so that no matter what hurricane and storm is raging on the surface of our lives, the joy of Jesus is sustaining us deep, deep down below. We need this. Would you bring this joy for your glory and for our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of that Holy Spirit.